Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hi, I'm Serge. I use he, him pronouns. Hi, I'm Chris. I use non-binary pronouns such as they, them. And welcome to Libra Lounge, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic edition, where we come to you more often with less editing and more off-the-cuff stuff. Uh, This time we have a guest with us, a repeat guest, our first repeat guest, Sean O'Brien, who many of you may remember from our Libra Planet 2019 episode. Uh, where he talked about privacy and specifically mobile issues uh, and how mobile applications are um, spying on us all the time. Anyway, welcome back, Sean. Hey, thank you for having me. Very excited. Um, I use he, him pronouns. So, uh, Sean, uh, well, we're excited to have you here for a number of reasons, but uh, we wanted to have you on for something very specific, uh, which is... Uh, to talk about the Earnet Act, or at least open with that. Um, so this is a piece of legislation that is is moderately important, I think, um, and maybe is on very few people's radar right now because the world seems to be otherwise on fire. So, so could you enlighten us as to what this is? Sure. Um, so to talk about Earn, I call it Earn IT, but I guess Earn It is supposed to be clever. But um, to talk about that, uh, we've got to start with Section Two Thirty. Um, and some of your guests, you know, you have some, or listeners, I mean, have some technical background, so I'm sure they're aware of this, but just to give a quick overview, um, Section 230 is part of something called the Communications Decency Act. That came out in 1996. Um, and it was sort of a surprise section when it came out. Uh, Communications Decency Act obviously is um, a regulatory act to sort of police the internet. Um, it was a response uh, to lawsuits, some pretty high-profile uh, cases against CompuServe and Prodigy, for the people who remember those. Um, and anyway, uh, Section 230 of this act was a real surprise, and this is why you know every bill needs to be watched. It's hard to tell what or IT, you know, what the fallout's going to be, or, or the impact, or whether it just goes away. But um, anyway, there was a section uh, in this bill that said. Basically, if you're a provider of an interactive computer service, which would be pretty much anything we do, right, over the internet, um, then you're not liable for the content, right, for the speech of the users on your platform. Um, So that little one-liner has basically driven um, a massive amount of growth in the internet. Um, It's basically created the world we're in now. we have a sort of unique position uh, in the United States having something like that in writing. Uh, and since it's been implemented, uh, it's been fought tooth and nail by a lot of different groups. Um, but basically, you know, it, it allows the YouTubes to exist, it allows the Facebooks to exist, and all that terrible social media that we don't like, right? That we're having so many problems with, or at least discussions about, let's call them, <laughs> about moderation and infiltration, etc., um, but it's also allowed for, uh, you know, a lot of the decentralized freedom respecting services. It's allowed, uh, email providers, et cetera, not to have to do dragnet surveillance, although sometimes they do anyway. Um, 
and so on and so forth without having to feel like uh, providing a service that is not actively policed all the time. You know, they don't have to do that kind of policing because they're not going to be held liable for, for the content that people say. Um, now, what the Earn It Act does um, or intends to do is say, okay, we're not going to get rid of Section 230, right? But we're going to create a set of standards, right? We're going to set uh, baseline principles that have to be followed. These best practices, which I think is the exact verbiage, um, if they're followed, then you get the intermediary liability. Um, So that is problematic for a lot of reasons. Um, The EFF has come out against this. The ACLU has come out against this. But on the flip side of the coin, there's been a lot of groups um, uh, worried about sexual exploitation of children, um, child pornography, that sort of thing, um, that want this to go through. Um, so, yeah, from my perspective, uh, it's it's unconstitutional uh, in at least two different ways. Um, I know the EFF has listed much more complex stuff, probably five or six different things. But basically, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, um, it's problematic to do this kind of policing it's problematic to give certain intermediaries, like let's say Google follows these best practices, right? They would get, you know, the uh, free pass to um, not have liability. But if I set up an internet service or you set up an internet service um, and you didn't follow the best pa- practices or they determined for some reason that you failed in some way, um, then you wouldn't get the same freedom of speech, right? So that's already a problem for, for the Constitution. Yep. So we've had in the in the past, just in the U.S. in the last couple of years, erosions of that already with SESTA-FOSTA, where it says, well, you're you're able to run your service unless some people complain about the way it's used as it relates to sexual things, and then your freedoms go away essentially. So it's not like this comes out of nothing. It's like it's this. It's it's not the same. It's not a normal slow erosion. But we've already had that erosion, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would say so. And, and the same objections from a First Amendment standpoint um, definitely um, exist for SESTA and FOSTA. Um, I think SESTA and FOSTA were positioned to try to strike down the Section 230 protections more um, broadly. And this is trying to shoehorn uh, some uh, regulatory framework into that environment. Um, so... Uh, my feeling on this is that, you know, powerful players, the big tech companies, which I'm constantly railing against and very much worried about from a privacy perspective and also freedom of speech. Um, but those big tech players rely on Section 230 to be able to do what they do. Right. Um, so they've pushed very hard and they've lobbied very hard to keep Section 230 going. Um, and my feeling is that that's why we have this new bill. Um, that's why Sestin Fawcett never really got the traction that I think a lot of those groups, um, you know, uh, child exploitation groups uh, were, were hoping for. Um, and yeah, but it's, it's very similar. You're correct to point that out. Um, I would say in this bill though, um, specifically, especially right now from a fourth amendment standpoint, um, it's really scary to me because they're not mentioning encryption, but we have people in power um, who will be making the decisions about what those best practices are. Um, and those people are very much vocal about putting back doors and encryption, etc. So that does change the conversation a little bit from a few years ago. Yeah, and it makes me think about the Australian 
anti-encryption bill that passed in 2019, which radically changed uh, the governmental powers in Australia to, so you could still have end-to-end encryption, but the government could mandate that uh, back doors were put in so that, yes, you know, your and my conversation is end-to-end encrypted, but there's an invisible third party listening in. Um, and that, that we, and according to my understanding of from, from the EFF on this, uh, from a talk that they gave at uh, Libra Planet in 2019, which is where we were, is that you weren't even allowed to talk about it, you weren't even allowed to disclose, etc. And it sounds like, you know, from what I'm hearing from um, you and others, that there are concerns that, as you say, the best practices might be those same kind of backdoors put into uh, communication systems. Yeah, so um, since the last time we sat down and talked, um, I uh, became the editor of something called The Privacy Issue, uh, which is a great site where we do a lot of articles on this sort of thing. And we've done a couple articles about dragnet surveillance, um, talking about uh, Five Eyes, which is uh, U.S., Canada, Australia, U.K., New Zealand, um, the the Information Sharing Alliance of Intelligence Agencies. And... um, you, you correctly mentioned the Australian encryption bill or anti-encryption bill. Um, there's also a lot of pressure um, in the UK um, to stop, um, to allow backdoors and to stop 5G implementation from overseas where the keys would not be in the control of the UK government. Um, so there's some geopolitical sort of anti-China stuff going on here as well. Um, you know, f- conflicts between the powers. Um so I do recommend if your audience is interested, checking all that stuff out. But what I will say very uh, sort of quickly here is um, Australia seems to fall in line pretty quickly um, to um, some pretty totalitarian control of uh, their uh, information system. The UK is starting to look that way. And with this COVID-19 stuff and them having a bill passed that gives all kinds of emergency powers, um to Parliament, um, it's going to be very interesting to see what goes on there and probably very depressing. And then I do think here, Earn IT or Earn It um, has the potential to be accelerated because of COVID-19 and the fact that people, A, aren't paying attention to it, and B, um, politicians are very likely to get more power and gain more power legally um, to do this sort of um, surveillance. Um but it was always very interesting to me that the U.S. would sort of propose and pressure allies, right, in this Five Eyes alliance to um, allow them to see communications, to make sure that they didn't go dark, so to speak. But here, it was always harder to pass it legally. Now, we know the NSA, et cetera, um, had CIA definitely as well, um, have uh, found all kinds of tricky ways to get around that. Um, but, you know... Legal implementation, actual, you know, du jour implementation of an anti-encryption um, dragnet surveillance uh, setup has not happened yet here. And the potential for, for Earnit is for that to occur. Um, critics will point out that the word encryption is not used, but it doesn't really matter because the assumption is, and there's no other way to look at it, that if you need to police traffic, which is normally encrypted, you have to be able to read it. 
And if the providers are going to be held liable, they're going to need a copy of the private keys so that they can read the communication. There's just no way around it. It's just not possible. So, so, so I, I think this is kind of interesting because we're hitting kind of a semi-golden age of, or like what looked like the dawn of the golden age, really, of end-to-end encryption in certain kinds of communication. And it looks like there's a good chance that that's going to be cut off um, fairly quickly if we aren't careful about it. Is is that right? Yeah, so I, what I would say is that, you know, when these laws are passed, it's not like everybody overnight just changes every practice they do. Um, there's obviously a lot of what we would call grassroots software, right? A lot of the free software stuff that we know and love um, is not going to just roll over and stop doing what they're doing with, you know, double, double ratchet algorithms, etc. Um, there is going to be some pushback from the big companies and so on. I would say, you know, I mean, it's like the net neutrality stuff. It's awful. You don't want to pass, but it doesn't necessarily mean that overnight everything is going to change. Um, but, you know, having that stuff in law gives it the power to to, to basically break down um, over time the protections that we've come to expect. And we were actually making a lot of traction in, and hopefully still are when this pan- pandemic finishes. Um but, you know, I mean, most of the web is encrypted now, right? Um, and it's encrypted in such a way that the providers may not know what you're doing, depending on the service and so on and so forth. Um, and it's really awesome. And if we move away from that, I mean, we're in real trouble. So, Well, well, you just brought up a excellent um, aspect. Actually, it's come up a number of times in this episode, and no surprise since we're living in it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'd love to hear an expansion on how – why – why it seems like the pandemic may um, provide more of an opening for this. I mean, you'd think that, uh, you know, my feeling is, of course, during a pandemic, that's when politicians will all get together and be nicest and hold hands and and help advance the world and and so on. Is is that not necessarily the, the, the outlook we're looking at here? Yeah, so... um... My reading of history is that moments like this are um, disastrous in some ways and um, open up avenues for freedom in others, um, but they take massive amounts of struggle to get those freedoms uh, or, or maybe even expanded freedoms, right, um, pushed through. And then, of course, we've seen massive amounts of conflict, um, armed conflicts, etc., follow things like um, pandemics. Um, look, the entire destabilization of Europe um, in the um, you know high medieval period, right? Um, crisis of the 14th century, so-called. Um, <laughs> there was consolidation of power, et cetera, et cetera. So although I won't say you can make complete, perfect historical analogies, yeah, I mean, things get a little scary, to put it mildly, when you have systems of power that are freaking out um, and are losing control in a lot of ways. My current reading of what's going on both digitally and also more widely in society is that all the trends that were being accelerated by technology, but were kind of not necessarily, you know, becoming true, um, are now going to become true very, very quickly. Um, so, for example, everybody now has jumped into all of these streaming services. Um, they've done it pretty much immediately. And with no regard to privacy or security, it's just, you know, well, well, what can I use? I got to use this because I have to see if I can get my last paycheck from my boss, right? Um, 
et cetera, et cetera. So that's happening quickly. Um, we're seeing the malls and the retail dying out. It's going to be pretty much completely gone. Um, the push for media content into online streaming, streaming services, which was obviously already happening, um, that's going to be rapidly accelerated if there is such a thing as a movie theater left after this. Um, we're going to see other industries that are near and dear to my heart, but maybe other people don't care about, like the comics industry, right? Uh, moving completely online. Um, they can't sustain in this environment, and basically their IP house is owned by big media companies now, so there's really no reason to sell physical books if they're going to lose money on them. Um, we're we're going to see drones, right? We're going to see restrictions lifted on stuff like that. They're going to oh, we need to do drone delivery. We need to do this, this, and this. There's been some experiments in New Haven with that already, unfortunately. I'm in New Haven, Connecticut, for the audience. Um and, uh, you know, we might see m more things like self-driving cars, which we know have major problems and so on. But, I mean, if you've got a pandemic and you have a situation where you want to not have a driver, it seems to me that the logical conclusion would be to use a self-driving car, you know, to be damned about the safety and, you know, whether the thing crashes into whatever, um, you know. And that's sort of what goes on in these moments. Um you're correct to point out that our leaders, generally speaking, are going to be hungry for power. Um, it depends. Um, I'd like to think democratic states are, are a little uh, less um, likely to turn into totalitarian ones immediately. But, I mean, we have a, a buildup of totalitarian structures, um, which IT would accelerate. Um, what we saw yesterday in Hungary... Um, right where the emergency powers were given to the uh, prime minister there, you know, that's extremely problematic. And I do think vast parts of Europe and maybe especially Eastern Europe, it's tough to say, but perhaps the Mediterranean states like Italy too, um, we're going to see some pretty rough stuff going on. So um, yeah, the world's going to be very different if we do have a third appearance and let's hope we do when the world exists uh, in some form that we can have a talk like this. Um, without getting in trouble for it or arrested, um, you know, let let let's hope we can we we can have that conversation. But it will be a very different world when that happens. So, obviously, there there's not much we can do about some of these threats, right? We can't individually do much about the end of Western civilization as we know it, but. If we go by the basic assumption that uh, Western democracy is still functional, what are some practical steps that people can take to potentially head off some of this and or protect themselves? Yeah, I just want to say real quickly, and I did do a thread in, in Dr. O's Twitter for someone who was kind of depressed, saying all the positive things that I think could come out of this. So there are some things with movements and so on that can come out of it. So before I really get into that, I just want to say, look, we're going to see a lot of people who are looking at the world in a way that they have never looked at the world before. Things are much more malleable now than they were. We could have popular movements that really... Um, you know, move the needle in a positive direction for freedom, um, put more control back in the hands of labor. Um, we could have situations where we have, you know, real social welfare here in this country, um, real universal health care, maybe something like a universal basic income, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and those kinds of things uh, could be great. We could see new cultures come out of this. You know, everything moves into these streaming services, right? And it's the Disney Plus and it's Netflix and whatever, 
you know, you may see, and I know people don't like the the whole quote unquote piracy thing, but it's a way in which the information system can be a little relieved without people having to pay massive amounts of money um, each month just to have a subscription to a service. And I do expect things like that to open up the information system. So anyway, um, as far as things to do, um, it's hard because, you know, in these moments, people are scrambling to um, just keep their head afloat and keep the money coming into the bank account. And then they're worried if the banks are still going to be there. Um, but I would say that we have to have a measure of solidarity with each other. Um, I think the uh, issues we've seen with moderation and and um, discussion on social media, especially um, that sort of have been coming to a head again during the election season. I think it'd be nice to see some of that sort of calm down and see people actually be able to have a more um, rational or not necessarily even rational, but just um, a real conversation again. Um, I think taking the lessons of the past and looking at the old internet, and maybe I'm just being a little nostalgic, but um, you know, looking at the way that forums and those ways of interacting and sharing information um, used to operate, looking at those and, and trying to bring some of that back, um, some of that culture back might be very helpful. I think it could also be helpful in quarantine and mutual aid situations where, you know, people can help out other people, sharing information, sharing what supplies they have, sell, sharing what skills they have to help other people out. Um, so all of that can totally be done. Um as far as from yep oh sorry uh i didn't mean to interrupt i i just thought there's a good transition here you know you're you're bringing up lots of useful things that people can do in general but especially people with um the kind of backgrounds that uh much of the libre lounge community tends to have which is tends to average more technically minded than the average audience like are there are there ways in which you know the kind of Libre Lounge type listener or, you know, free software people in general um, might think about to be able to help and better the world in this moment? Sure. So uh, as far as response to the pandemic and response to the shortages on supplies, um, I think um, the initiatives being done by makerspaces um, and hack spaces have been awesome. Um, the local makerspace here in New Haven, Make Haven, they've done... Um, quite a bit of work uh, doing masks and 3D printing what parts they can 3D print um, for hospitals. Um, and that helps with the shortages, uh, which will continue and I assume are going to get worse before they get better. Um, there's an initiative out right now called Hackers in Hospitals um, that the FSF is uh, helping to promote. Um, and that initiative is sort of trying to bring together um, a lot of disparate currently disparate efforts um, around, you know, um, sort of trying to help with the supply chain issues with, with medical supplies and masks and so on. Um, so that's great. Um, but I also think, you know, where and when we can um, sort of embrace um, quote unquote alternative technologies, you know, setting up a matrix channel, you know, and trying to get your friends and family into it. So you now have a real place that you can communicate that's not under total surveillance, that is your, you know, chat room, right? And now you can start sharing information, um, even just having that more interpersonal uh, conversation that, what are you going to do it? And you're going to do it in a Facebook group, maybe, you know, um, 
we can start doing that stuff. And I would say that the the technically uh, adept folks uh, or people who are just willing to read documentation, right? You know, a lot of this stuff is pretty easy to set up. Um, we should be doing those kinds of things too. Um, you know, I'm a very sort of uh, let's decentralize the, crap, the cloud, um, get rid of the, you know, extreme reliance on these centralized services person. Um, I do understand that, you know, I mean, times are tough and people are going to jump into whatever they need to jump into to have a conversation or get get stuff done that they need to get done, right? Get work done and so on. Um, but, you know, I mean, as time goes on and we're spending more and more time indoors, I do think some experimentation and some attempts to break out of just ending up in two or three de facto video conferencing environments is also going to be pretty helpful. So, so. let's jump into the elephant in the room here, which is Zoom. Uh, and I immediately thought of you when it came out that the Zoom iOS app was using the Facebook SDK, which meant that everybody using the iOS app was having their data sent to Facebook. And then just uh, yesterday, as of t- as of the date we're recording this, uh, two zero-day exploits were released about uh, Zoom. And uh, in addition, I think it was yesterday or the day before, it was shown that although Zoom uh, claims that it has end-to-end encryption, it doesn't actually have end-to-end encryption. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and, and it's becoming the de facto uh, collaboration, you know, m- large collaboration tool. If you have more than 10 people, everyone's using Zoom. So, uh, and, and in fact, that's what... what inspired me to contact you about uh, and come on the show was both earn it and, and especially zoom. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. Um, so uh, to start zoom is proprietary software, right? Um, and uh, not to bring everything back to free software all the time, but um, the important thing to note here is that um, free software isn't a, uh, a guarantee of perfect security, of course, or, you know, good security at all necessarily. But what it is is sort of a baseline requirement. Um, so the security problems um, that Zoom has, uh, and it looks to be a very cobbled together app. Um, I was just looking at the installer and looking at my local um, install of it here because I've been having to use it to talk to people. Um, you know, it seems to have a number of problems. So um, not just the way it works, the way in which it installs, and it seems to bypass on other operating systems, not GNU Linux, but um, Mac OS X and uh, Windows, it seems to bypass all kinds of administrative controls that are supposed to be security controls on those OSs, right? Um, But it also has potential licensing issues, right? Um, It uses 7-zip. It seems to be using a lot of other copyleft code. Um, I I still, you know, I'm not... I I know a lot about um, license violations, but I don't want to make a judgment yet. Um, But I do see a lot of QT stuff in there um, that is questionable. Um, Stuff that's under the GPL 2 and 3 that could be problematic. So all that stuff is true, right? Um, But this is what happens with proprietary software, right? Um, There's no eyeballs on it. The internal practices could be spaghetti code, just cobbling stuff together for all you know. Um there's going to be huge issues um, with the code and there's no accountability, um, generally speaking. And this is the problem that organizations, when they do decide, right, they, to take some proprietary app and to actually quote unquote, open up the code, 
um, that this is the challenge that they have. They might have decades. I mean, Zoom doesn't quite have decades, but it may even have a full decade now. I can't remember when the company started um, of of crap in there. And so a lot of that's going to lead to um, security issues. And now that they're under scrutiny because they had huge amount of growth um, because of COVID-19, um, now that they're under scrutiny, uh, you know, uh, security prof- professionals are going to point all that stuff out. Um, they have an opportunity to turn the page. Um, they have an opportunity to gain trust and so on. But as you correctly point out, um, they seem to have a motivation to be collecting um, private information and more private information than they're telling their users um, and sharing it with third parties like Facebook. Um, so all that stuff is is pretty awful. It's not unexpected. Um, the whole thing with the end-to-end encryption... Um, uh, and, you know, I had talked to uh, Yael, Yael Grauer, who's a great reporter who worked on that with Michael Lee. Um, you know, I looked at the security paper that, that Zoom put out um, and I was like, yeah, no, this is this is more like a TLS handshake that it's doing. It's not doing, you know, double ratchet or any of that stuff we would call end to end encryption. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of apps in the past have used uh, marketing terms like that. I will say it's completely incorrect for them to have done it. Um, I think a lot of institutions chose Zoom because of the, um, you know, let's face it, lie that it's end-to-end encrypted. Um, But, uh, you know, uh, how the heck are they going to end-to-end encrypt it if they're also going to surveil their users, right? So this goes back to the IT stuff. Um, We... If we were to pressure Zoom to implement good quality, you know, E2, EE um, in the app, uh, the monetary value of surveilling your users goes out the window. And that's the thing that the investors care about. That's the thing the company cares about and so on. So um, we really just have to get away from this stuff. (laughs) And, you know... um, I do have to say, Elfin in the room for myself, um, you know, I've been using this stuff. I've had to use Google Hangouts uh, also, which I haven't even touched in, you know, I don't know, a year or two years um, recently to talk to people. I use Google Hangouts. I may end up having to use Microsoft Teams at some point. Um, These things are becoming um, as ubiquitous as the telephone, and I actually think there's going to be a lot of people questioning whether they need a cell phone plan for what they do, especially if they live in a city, um, and so on, you know, these things may become the real de facto, you know, Zoom may be more popular than a phone in a couple months. Um, if it's not already being used more, um, if these types of platforms are not already being used more than, than, you know, traditional phone infrastructure at this current moment, I don't know. I don't even know how you would, how you would study that. Um, so, so, uh, for my own part, you know, I don't want to say, uh, you, you know, uh, You've got to make a judgment call for yourself about the value that you get out of talking to someone over Zoom, but you should have no illusions that it's giving you any measure of security or privacy, and if you can, you want to try to sandbox that as much as possible. Um, I'm very much thinking about having basically a burner laptop with an operating system I don't trust on it um, just to use these kinds of tools because I don't want to have my other communications um, potentially... Um, violated because I have something like Zoom installed. Um, and uh, I will say I'm, I'm guilty as well. Um, we are putting together a online summit uh, called Flatten the Curve Summit. We've got some great speakers, including folks from Free Software. Um, we're going to be demoing some stuff for GNU Health. Um, we've got um, some physicians and public health experts. 
We've got Cory Doctorow. We've got Gabriella Coleman. We've got um, the Hackers for Hospitals folks. Um, and we're going to talk about some awesome, awesome free software stuff, but we are going to be using Zoom. Um, we've got a two-person team right now, maybe a three-person operating the video feed. And what are we going to do when we need 100 users in a room? Um, it's the only thing out there that checks the boxes we need. So kind of sucks. Yeah, that, mildly. that is a challenge when you know all the problems of uh, the thing you don't want to use, but don't have something lined up to be able to be like, oh, okay, let's let's do this instead. Um, I mean, it, it, it just seems to be a pretty common problem. Um, but I mean, I, I think that's not, that doesn't make it not worthwhile, even when you know you can't make it to the place you want to get to not be aware of the problems that are available, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, we're very lucky, especially post-Snowden, that we had such a diverse um, and dedicated effort um, put into um, strong encryption, uh, both at a low level, right, um, but also, you know, good user interfaces, um, great communication apps, and so on, that people can actually, you know, use. Um so, you know, we do have a rich variety of stuff out there now, but before we had that stuff, it doesn't mean that you don't criticize the, you know, the crappy situation that you're in. Um, and I think that's something we need to also keep in mind. I have seen some, um, you know, infosec Twitter, as I call it, um, individuals sort of be like, oh, well, it's no big deal because of the threat model and, you know, let's not freak out about this. But the criticisms are legitimate. Um, we should talk about them. We should see if, especially if on a long-term curve, we can start replacing this stuff. Um, just like, you know, all the other great free software projects, especially from the beginning with GNU, right? You replace the pieces you can and you keep moving and, and you hope you can, you can do the work. Um, I do also think that uh, threat modeling and traditional sort of cybersecurity models um, don't take into account personal autonomy and long-term what I would call ecosystem effects. Um, so, you know, just because, you know, in this very short-term mindset, the proximal problem, right, you may not have a situation where you're, uh, you have somebody spying on you or you don't care about the words that are coming out of your mouth, whether they were spied on, uh, doesn't mean that you don't have a long-term problem coming down the line. Um, as we see governments change and shift and, you know, like we were talking about, it's very likely to become less democratic, um, who the heck knows if the things we now take for granted as being okay to say in a certain context are going to come back to bite us. And they totally could. So, Look, it's important that we, that we don't get overwhelmed by this, you know, because if we do, then we're, then we're frozen in fear. But it's scary and it's, look, it's healthy for us to have these conversations where we directly confront these issues head on. And I'm, I'm glad that we're having you on and I'm glad that you can talk so coherently uh, about these, you know, topics that, frankly, for me, are somewhat overwhelming. So I, I mean that sincerely that we're, we're glad you're here. Um, you know, are there things that we haven't brought up that you think are really important that are maybe not getting the attention they should be getting? <sighs> yeah, I mean... Um... I would say that um, we need to take a close look um, and just to keep sort of the tech angle, but still talk about the bigger issues. Um, the changes that we're going to see are going to um, remove some industries from the picture completely and just, just alter others um, in ways that are um, problematic, like I said, potentially accelerating and very likely accelerating some trends that have already been going on. 
Um, one of the things that has been going on is um, untrustworthy, unprivacy respecting, um, what is, that's a terrible word, but you know what I mean, surveillance technology um, in retail and in, in, in personal spaces, um, facial recognition technology, these kinds of things, which, um, you know, just a week before uh, COVID really hit in my city, you know, we, I was looking at introducing uh, a... Uh, a, a piece of legislation that would have banned, you know, would have made us one of the cities banning facial recognition. And uh, if we take our eye off of that, or if we allow, for example, um, some of the types of surveillance that are coming through to quote unquote control the epidemic, um, if we allow that stuff to come in, it's it's going to be problematic because, you know, it's like tarmac, right? You lay down a parking lot, it, it never comes up again. Um, you know, and even if you did, it's not like you're going to go back and replace a wetland or, you know, replace whatever, um, a meadow, uh, you end up in a situation where this stuff is implemented and just becomes part of the world we're in. Um, so I do think we need to think about that. We need to think both about the private retail, you know, the low Bluetooth, low energy devices that are doing geofencing, tracking people around grocery stores and so on. Um, the automation of the retail experience, um, which will be increased by this, but was already starting to happen. So Walmart's already had pickup boxes that you would order ahead of time and go and grab this stuff, um, but also self-checkout, right? Um, and uh, there's some scary stuff happening. Companies like Amazon are putting in Whole Foods, which they own, um, you know, scanners for people's hands that would actually try to come up with a unique pattern for the veins under your skin, basically, to identify you. And whether or not that works, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe that technology is, is a joke and it doesn't work. But um, the point is, those kinds of things are going to be thought about much more strongly now and in some ways, you know, it may be, you know, correct, right? You want to have social distancing. You want to have situations where people are touching things less um, and are more sanitary and, and practicing better hygiene by default, right? Um, but in other ways, there's going to be surveillance baked in. Um, so we need to sort of keep our eyes on that stuff, too, as it starts to come down. Um, and then, you know, lastly, um, I would say as a response to that, we could be implementing IoT devices that are um, not that, right? That are doing some of the work and are solving some of the practical problems, right? But are not violating people's privacy. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that you can count that a person is in the room, you know, and I've done some of this work uh, myself before um, for, for civic organizations where we're just basically counting people, right? Um, we don't have to track them, geofence them, come up with demographic profiles. We just want to do the equivalent of clicking a clicker in a room, right? And you can do that sort of stuff. And I think hackers and, and technically minded folks can think about all kinds of ways that that kind of stuff can be done um, in a privacy respecting manner. Um, and, and hopefully we can sort of keep back the tide of some of this other stuff. All right. It sounds like, um, you know, we have a lot. Look, we'll, we'll link to some resources for learning more about um, some of the practical things that we can, you know, we can do about like earn it. But um, I, I also remember you said earlier that you were doing a privacy conference. Do you want to uh, plug that before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. So um, some of the listeners may know. Um, so uh, I started a small company called Privacy Safe um, back in September. Um, we did a crowdfunder, which didn't turn out so well, moved to a direct uh, order model. But basically, we take um, free software, put it on um, open hardware, Beagle boards, 
and um, we do some interesting things with it. And the interesting thing we are doing right now, um, we've had it, you know, uh, on the development uh, schedule, and we're working on it. But we really moved it from the back burner to the front one um, because of COVID nineteen here. Um, is a GNU Health appliance, um, and GNU Health is a hospital information system. It does a broad um, amount of things, um, keeps all kinds of information that other more traditional hospital information systems might not. Um, But it also can be implemented on small pocket-sized devices, um, be used for personal health tracking, quarantine environments, uh, rural clinics and hospitals that don't have tons of cash to drop on these enormous systems um, and are being stressed right now, right? And so on. So, um, you know, uh, I and a team, a, a couple other people um, who are working on this, we uh, said, well, you know, let's try to put together an online summit. Um, let's bring together awesome speakers who can talk about this. Um, we'll have Luis Falcone from GNU Health Talk. We'll have some physicians. Um, so, so we've got Trish Greenhout from um, University of Oxford, very well-known physician. Um, we've got uh, some speakers about law and cyber conflict and some of these other issues, some of these other crises that we're facing. And let's have them do a remote summit, um, set it up to be pay what you can. So you pay a dollar if you want, or you pay, you know, our suggested is 25 and would we would very much appreciate it. But, you know, everybody's cash strapped for right now. And we really just want to make sure attendees get a lot out of the experience. Um, so we're calling that summit um, Flatten the Curve. Flatten the Curve being the phrase that uh, listeners may have seen on social media um, about and also on television. Uh, about trying to get rid of this exponential growth curve of um, of inf- both people with the virus and people dying from the virus, right, um, in our society and flattening that out and making it reasonable and, you know, uh, at least somewhat, um, you know, actionable and, and able for our healthcare systems to handle, Um so we flatten that out. We extend the time period. We limit the amount of patients that are having to fill beds in hospitals by staying home and quarantining and all the things that we're doing right now. So Flatten the Curve Summit, which is uh, flattenthecurve.tech uh, is the name of this event. Uh, we put together in a little over a week, um, but we've got some great speakers. I think it's about 20 right now, and we're adding a, a few to the schedule. It's three days. Um, it's all going to be remote. We are going to use Zoom and use it for recording, but we will be putting the videos up on both YouTube and a PeerTube instance afterwards. I don't know what the schedule is going to be for that. Um, but if you attend the conference, you can do a Q&A and so on. You can see the demos live. Um, you can potentially sponsor um, one of these privacy-safe health edition devices with GNU Health on it um, for a hospital or rural clinic implementation. Um, you know, We're looking right now on where we can deploy them, Argentina, some other places, um, and if folks want to, um, you know, try to sponsor that work, um, we will make sure it gets done. So, uh, yeah, very cool stuff. I'm trying to turn lemons into lemonade, keep moving. Um, I'm a bit of a workaholic anyway, so, you know, when, when times are tough, this is what I do. But, um, you know, so so many people are also doing that. Um, so I think that's a good attitude if we can embrace it, um, at least for a while, um, keep moving, keep trying to look at the more interesting, more malleable things we can do with the tools around us. Yeah, I agree with you, Sean, that I think right now, you know, a lot of us are stuck indoors, which means that we're, we're getting more done. We're more productive, but as you say, you know, uh, 
well, as you've said here, we need to both be aware of the the greater repercussions of this uh, global pandemic uh, and also stay in, in the moment and keep working on the things we can. Uh, so I think this is a good place for us to wrap up. Um, we've covered an enormous amount uh, every time we talk to you, all two times, so that therefore there must be a trend. Uh, you know, it's been a really... Uh, interesting and dense conversation where I know I'll be re-listening to this episode a bunch of times and thinking about, about everything we've discussed. So with that, um, if you would like to join us, uh, and I, us being mostly Chris and I, but also some occasional guests, uh, we're on IRC, we're at hash Libre lounge on Freenode. Uh, join us on the Fediverse at Libra Lounge at floss.social. Email us podcast at LibraLounge.org, or you can find us on Twitter at Libra Lounge. And with that, Chris, uh, since we're about to say you haven't said anything for a while, so uh, <laughs> I want to make sure you're still here. I'm still here. Uh, all I'm right. Just, I'm just listening. There's, okay. there's been so much. Yeah. No, uh, I'm. Uh, I really enjoyed this episode as well. So and, uh, thank you, Sean. Thank you for being yes. here and joining us the, through this difficult time and, and uh, scaring the crap out of our audience and ourselves and giving us some, some things to think about and do. Awesome. Uh, be well, guys, and uh, thank you. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.